Our text for this morning is Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. And this is the word of Almighty God. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Pray with me, friends. Lord God, I pray that you will open for us the beautiful gospel here in a text that we don't often look. I pray that you will give us courage and comfort in Christ, confidence in who he is and what he's done, and help us to rely fully on you and your grace and your mercy through faith alone for our salvation and for our hope. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. So the book of Isaiah shines a light on three periods of time. This, of course, is me still stuck in history teacher mode for just a minute for you who were in Sunday school. (laughs) The first 39 chapters of Isaiah mostly focus on the days of Isaiah's ministry. Think 740 to 686-ish B.C. That was about a century before the exile of Judah to Babylon. Chapters 40 through 55 bring prophetic words of encouragement from the Lord through Isaiah that are going to be for the people who are in exile under Babylon and Persia, the 500s. And then chapters 56 to 66 shine a light far forward to the glorious future kingdom of God. Well, chapter 40 is what opens the section we're studying today starts with God's pronouncement of comfort for his people, specifically the people who will be in exile. See, a little less than a century after Isaiah spoke those words, the people of Judah were going to be captured by the Babylonian Empire. They were going to be carried away from their homeland, forced to settle in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem, including the temple of God, would be utterly destroyed, and the nation would stay in exile around 70 years. Isaiah's words of comfort tell the people, God will bring you home. and God will restore you no matter how impossible this seems. God will use a king named Cyrus to decree your return. 
which is a pretty amazing prophecy since Isaiah spoke it at minimum 150 years before it happened, well before Cyrus was born, well before anybody had even thought of his name. And God will not merely bring his mercy to the descendants of Abraham. People from all over the world are going to come under the Lord's rule and they're going to find God's favor. After all, God has promised a king who will come, who will rule over the world, over all nations forever. Now, the section we're going to study today is one of the four servant songs of Isaiah. You guys, you guys have heard of, servant, of the servant songs in Isaiah, right? When you think of the servant songs in Isaiah, what chapter of Isaiah do you think of? That's exactly right. That's the fourth one. All four of these poetic passages point us beyond Isaiah, beyond national Israel, to the glorious kingdom of God and God's promised rescuer, King Messiah. The four servant songs are found in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, which Eric read for us earlier this morning. Chapters 49, verses 1 to 7. Chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. And the well-known one, of course, is Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53, verse 12. Reading the servant songs. We read about Jesus some seven centuries before his birth. Reading the servant psalms, we see that Jesus will serve the Lord perfectly and faithfully where national Israel fails to do so. Reading the servant songs, we see the goodness of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the glorious victory of Jesus. Today, as we read about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 50, We're going to find four points of application for you to write down if you want to. These are going to be a help to us as we get back then to the gospel according to John and as we walk with Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection because that's where we're going. So, you all set to study some Isaiah? Point number one, follow the teaching of Jesus. Follow the teaching of Jesus. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Now, right before this passage began, God pointed out that though he had never been unfaithful to the people of Judah, the Jews had in fact been unfaithful to him. And God had every right to utterly divorce himself from this people in accord with the terms of the covenant at Mount Sinai, but God hadn't done so. Instead, God had continued to preserve this people that he might preserve his promise to send somebody into the world, born into the family line of Abraham, who would bring God's blessing to all the nations. God rebuked the nation for not trusting in his power and his perfect covenant-keeping character. Then in verse 4 of Isaiah 50, the voice of the speaker changes. We move from hearing God speak to the nation in general to hearing the voice of the servant. That's why these are the servant songs. And only when the New Testament comes to its fruition are we finally going to understand that the servant here is Jesus. God the Son. God who took on flesh to be the very one that he's been promising all along. 
And here, as we see the promise of the servant to come, we see attributes of his character and his mission that will call us to follow him with our lives. Now, again, one more sort of note. Four times in this passage, the servant calls God by the name Adonai Yahweh, sovereign Lord or the Lord God. He's mighty. He's the Lord God whose will will indeed be done. The servant will serve the Lord God. The Lord God will see to it that the servant accomplishes his saving plan. And here's the question. Here's where we get into it. How will God's servant accomplish his mission and his plan? How will he do what his father sent him to do? And the first thing we're going to see here is that he will teach. The Lord God has given his servant the tongue of those who are taught. The servant will know the word and the ways of the Lord. Think about Jesus for a second, y'all. From his childhood, he staggered people with his understanding of the word of God. In Luke 2, 46 says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The best scholars in the land were amazed at the insightful questions that Jesus asked and the answers he gave when he was only 12 years old. And he grew in wisdom and knowledge. When the Savior then took up his three-year earthly ministry when he was about 30 years old, he was a great teacher of the Word of God. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who has authority and not as their scribes. That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But those who heard Jesus were stunned with the authority with which Jesus taught. The Savior didn't have to hatch. He, he didn't have to sort of guard his statements or, or, or he didn't have to sort of, oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking for here? He, he didn't have to pretend like he didn't know what he was declaring. He didn't have to hedge his words. He spoke with authority. He's like, I know the word of God. I know, thus says the Lord. I know this is how the word of God is intended to be applied. What's the impact of that teaching? In John 6, 68 and 69, we see Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. When the disciples heard Jesus teach, they understood Jesus spoke the very word of God. And Jesus brought them the only words that can bring people eternal life. The teaching of Jesus shows us who he is. He is the promised servant of God. He is the Lord God in the flesh. So when you think about Jesus and you think about Jesus' teaching, do not let yourself think, though, only of facts. The teaching of the servant of God has a purpose. If you look back at Isaiah 50, verse 4, it's for the good of the people. He will sustain with a word those who are weary. In Matthew eleven twenty eight and following, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But he said this, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learning from Jesus is taking his yoke, his gentle yoke upon you. And thanks be to God that brings rest to weary souls. Stop and think. There have been times in your life when you felt weary and burdened. Maybe, maybe you feel that way today. I've got a little of that today. And sometimes in those times of weariness, You ever have the Lord just let somebody come to you and say just the right thing in just the right way to bring comfort to your soul? You ever experienced that? Proverbs 25, 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. If you know what it feels like in general to have somebody comfort you with a kind word, with a good word, Take that feeling, take that concept and multiply that by a thousand and then multiply that by a million and then multiply that by a billion. The Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord God, has the love and the mercy and the wisdom to bring to us the true word of Almighty God in such a way as to bring real hope, true comfort, true rest to our souls He sustains with a word those who are weary. And then finally, for this one verse, the servant not only teaches, but he's taught by his father. When Isaiah writes, morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. He's pointing out the fact that God's servant will commune with his heavenly father. In Mark 1.35, we read that rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In Mark 6, 46, we see after Jesus had taken leave of the crowd, he went up on a mountain to pray. Jesus regularly met with his father in prayer. And besides that marking for us his perfection as God's servant, it reminds us that faithful followers of the Lord God meet with God. Guys, that's why we spend time in the Word. That's why we spend time in prayer. This is why faithful believers mark out a part of their day to get quiet with the Word of God, to listen to God's voice and His Word, to commune with Him, and to pray with Him. Because our Lord did it. God's faithful servant will be a divinely empowered teacher. And the Lord Jesus is that faithful teacher. And if we wish to live under his comfort and in the joy of his glory, we must hear and seek to obey the teaching of Jesus. This begins with saving faith in Christ because no obedience of yours, no obedience command to commands will save your soul. But once you're saved, you, you do lean in and seek to obey the teaching of Jesus for life and for rest and for joy. So we follow the words of Christ in the Gospels. 
We follow the commands of Christ given to his apostles in the rest of the New Testament. We faithfully apply the moral principles of the law from God's inspired word in the Old Testament. We will, if we want true joy, follow the teaching of Jesus. And that takes us to our second point here this morning. Give thanks for the obedient suffering of Jesus. Give thanks for the obedient suffering of Jesus. Look first at verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. There have been a lot of good teachers throughout the ages, haven't there? Have you guys ever heard a good teacher teach? Not all of even the good teachers you've heard have always turned out to be faithful, perfect followers, though, have they? We may, teachers, desire to communicate the Word of God, but I will tell you this, all of us who teach the Word of God will fall short of perfectly keeping all the commands that we espouse. You guys believe that? Ben, we've let you teach here before. Jason? Bill? Jonah? How many of you all say that you've perfectly kept everything you've taught the church? We're not perfect, y'all. Human like you. All of us, if we're honest, still fall short of perfection. What's fascinating for us here is that the servant of God is going to be faithful to obey the commands of his father. The servant declares that the Lord God has opened his ear. God has made the servant aware of his responsibilities. And the servant of God will obey. The servant is not rebellious. The servant will not turn his back on his responsibility. And this obedience of the servant, it's not just an obedience to the basic moral commands of God, though he is perfectly obedient to all of God's moral law. God's got a plan for the servant to follow. God has a mission for the servant to fulfill. And this mission he will fulfill is going to be hard. It's going to be painful. And fulfilling this mission is the only way for the servant of God to save your soul and mine. Early on, even in his ministry, Jesus chose to follow commands of God that didn't make sense to others. For example, Jesus was baptized. What do you know about the people who were baptized? All the people who came to John the Baptist to be baptized were sinners repenting in preparation for the coming of God's promised king. Was that Jesus' story? Was Jesus a sinner repenting in preparation for the coming of the king? No, not at all. But the Son of God chose to go and be baptized as well so that he could complete every right step of a faithful follower of God. In Matthew 3.15, we read that Jesus answered John the Baptist saying, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that's when John consented to baptize him. And as Jesus continues to go through his earthly ministry, he knows he's going to have to go through tremendous suffering in order to fulfill his mission. 
The mission of the servant, the Son of God, is a mission to redeem for God people, to rescue us from our sin. And the only way it can be done is if the Son of God willingly takes upon himself the suffering and the punishment that we deserve for sinning against God. You know, sometimes when Jesus talks about his suffering, he talks about it as a baptism that he will undergo, or as of drinking the cup of the wrath of God the Father. Luke 12, 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Or John 18, 11, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? But what's the suffering of God's servant going to look like? Look at verse 6 and you'll see a few pictures. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The servant of God will go through physical humiliation. What did you see there? He's going to be struck on the back, hit in the face. His beard will be pulled out. Evil men will spit on him. We know Jesus went through these things, don't we? Matthew 26, 67, it says, Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. Remember the the night before Jesus was crucified, the middle of the night, early morning hours, Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin. And once the Jews declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death, many of them physically abused him. Matthew 27, verses 26 to 31, then says, Then he, that's Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea, probably had Jesus beaten twice. One time before Pilate rendered his verdict, one time afterward. The one we just read is the the scene after Pilate allowed that Jesus would be crucified, after the verdict. Because before the soldiers led Jesus out to crucify him, they scourged him. They laid open the flesh of his back with a whip that would have been embedded with maybe bone or sharp glass bits, slicing you to ribbons. What we want to remember is this suffering of the servant is part of the servant's fulfilling his mission. Jesus could not have saved our souls without going through the humiliation that our sin deserves. Jesus could not have saved our souls without choosing to walk through horrible suffering. Jesus could not have saved our souls without going to the cross on our behalf. I want to point you to the fourth servant song, not the third one that we're in right now. 
the suffering of the servant. It's how we're saved. In Isaiah 52, 14, we read, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 53 verses 5 and 6, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus willingly suffered to save our souls. He had to. In order for God both to be just and the one who mercifully justifies the ones he forgives, Jesus had to pay our penalty and go through our suffering. And that's why I say that you and I should give, that we should give thanks for the obedient suffering. Of Jesus. Never cease to be amazed at what the Lord did to rescue you from hell. Third point rest in the victory of Jesus. Rest in the victory of Jesus. Look at verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The third servant song here continues and we find out that though the servant is brutalized by men, he is not disgraced. Why? The Lord God helps him. The Lord God will see to it that the servant does not fail. The Lord God will make sure that the servant perfectly accomplishes the work that he came to do. The help from the Lord, the guarantee of success is how the servant is able to set his face like flint. The picture there is of a servant hardening his resolve and pressing on with all he's got even through the suffering that is his mission. He will not waver. The servant will not suddenly become afraid and change his mind like a rock. He will be steady in his purpose. And the servant knows he's not ultimately going to be put to shame. He knows that though he faces hardship, he's going to come out the other side to victory. Remember, this is promising us Jesus Luke 9.51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face, like a flint, to go to Jerusalem. He intentionally went where he would be arrested, tried, and crucified, and he did it knowing he would achieve victory. In Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. John 10, 17 to 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. 
tell us, hey, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But then listen to this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew he was going to be victorious. Jesus knew that though he would pay the penalty for sins, he was not personally guilty of sins. Jesus knew he would be vindicated by his Holy Father. And that vindication would be demonstrated by the fact that Jesus would rise from the grave after his death. Verses 8 and 9 of our our song here, Isaiah 58 and 9 say, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The servant song paints a picture here of a courtroom scene. The servant says to anybody who would oppose him, Come on! Stand up, challenge me, because the Lord will vindicate me. Anyone who would oppose him can try to make a case, but the Lord himself will be there to aid his servant. And at the end of verse 9, we see that those who would oppose the servant, they're going to fall apart like a moth-eaten garment. How was Jesus vindicated as God's holy servant? Romans 1.4 says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that God the Father was satisfied with Jesus' perfect offering for the sins of those he came to save. What about those who oppose Jesus? What about those who refuse to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did? Well, Acts 17.31 says, He has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus has proved who he is. Jesus has proved his identity through his victory over the grave. The Son of God, God's perfect servant, suffered, died, and rose from the grave. And in that resurrection, he gave the final proof of all of his claims. And it's that resurrection which is going to be proof of the condemnation of all who hate him and oppose him and ignore him. So what do we do? Rest in the victory of Jesus. Jesus is alive today. Jesus' work is finished. The salvation of every person who puts his or her trust in Jesus is a sure thing. And the right thing to do is for you to rest in that salvation. Rejoice in that victory and live in joyful obedience out of the overflow of what he's done. 
because Jesus saved your soul. And when I say rest, understand me here. I'm not saying rest in Jesus if you're good enough. Because you're not good enough. I'm saying rest in Jesus because he did the work and it's done. And God the Father testifies that the work is done by raising him from the dead. Fourth point. Trust in Jesus for life. Trust in Jesus for life. If we were in John, this point would be something else. What would it be if we were in John? It sure would. (laughs) Didn't want to leave that one out. Look at verses 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. These last two verses of Isaiah 50 They're like a a postscript to the servant's song. The voice is not that of the servant anymore, but that of the prophet talking about the servant. And the two verses give us a contrast. There are those who will trust in and follow God's servant. There are those who will refuse to believe in the servant and who will try to make their own way to God. Listen to me carefully. You are one of those two people. Either you are one who rests completely in Jesus for your salvation, or you're one who thinks something about you is what will secure your eternity. You are one of those two people. Do you know which one you are? Those who trust will live. Those who refuse to trust will not. Verse 10 asks, Who among us fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? By the way, that's a little parallel line. You can't say that you fear the Lord if you're not willing to obey the voice of the servant. There is a call to obedience. You don't get to be on God's side if you're not willing to align yourself with the servant. What does that mean altogether? It doesn't mean you've got to be a good little boy or you're not saved, or a good little girl or you're not saved. What it means is there's no salvation apart from Jesus. If you will not obey the voice of the servant to believe, you cannot be saved by some other means. And the illustration that we're going to have here is of nighttime darkness. How are you going to survive the dark? How are you going to be sustained? How are you going to make it through? you got two options. One option leads to life. One option leads to death and hell. Some people in the darkness of this life are going to simply trust in the Lord and rely on the servant for their salvation. That means you will trust in, believe in, rest in the finished work of Jesus, the servant, and that person will live. Romans 10, verses 9, 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you guys believe the word of God there? Yes. 
It's good news. In contrast, verse 11 tells us about the person who won't trust in the Lord, who won't rest in the servant, who won't rely only on the servant for his hope of salvation. Isaiah uses darkness here as the metaphor for this world. Some people think they can live in this dark world by making their own fires, lighting their own torches. Here's the question. Will those people be able to survive? Will they be able to make it on their own? By their own power, by their own goodness, with their own wisdom? God says this to the man or the woman who thinks he can live by his own power and his own wisdom. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Is that clear enough? If any person thinks they can make their way on their own by their goodness, make their own path to the Lord, lighting their way with their own man-made torches, that person will lie down in torment. The person who says to himself, I'm going to stand before the Lord by my wisdom, by my righteousness, by my goodness, will be under the wrath of God forever. When it comes to being right with God, There is not a single saved person who will stand before the Lord God and like Frankie said, sing, I did it my way. Not saying it's not a pretty song, but it better not be the way you look at the Lord. Trust in Jesus for life. The whole point of God giving us this poem is to show us that all people everywhere need to turn away from sin and self, say, I can't get over this, I can't beat this, I can't keep doing this, I can't live in this, I've got to let it go, I'm helpless, I put my entire trust for my entire eternity, for my entire soul in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Only Christ, God's perfect servant, can save your soul. And thanks be to God, Jesus came, taught, suffered, and rose from the grave for that very purpose, saving our very souls. So praise God for writing this down for us seven centuries before Jesus even came. Praise God. Trust Jesus. Stop relying on self. Believe and live. Let's pray together. Lord, love your word and love the gospel. Thank you for Jesus who lived the only righteousness I can have who died the only sacrifice I can trust in, who rose and proved his victory. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to be a people who trust in Jesus, who genuinely, genuinely trust. Help us remember how sweet, how awe-inspiring it is to be forgiven. Help us to trust, to rest. Yes, help us to long for righteousness that we might honor you. 
but to never think that our goodness saves us. Forgive us, have mercy on us, grow us in your grace. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.